Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, automakers like Toyota and Ford have halted production in Ontario due to the protesters blocking the borders on the Ambassador Bridge. Economic impacts? Well, we're going to talk with the president of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association, Brian Kingston. Uh, The Premier has also declared, by the way, a state of emergency for the trucker protest this morning. We'll talk about the implications of that. And Super Bowl preview. Some betting trends for you. We have Johnny Avello from DraftKings. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml the auto industry has been crippled on both sides of the border by the way uh some of the american plants have had to uh, lay off some shifts as well simply because they're not getting the parts that they need i want to bring brian kingston into the conversation brian is the president of the canadian vehicle manufacturers association who have been extremely impacted by this uh, brian busy day today thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning thanks for having me on Brian, talk to us about what your members are telling you about the industry and the impact that this has had on them over the last few days. Well, the Ambassador Bridge is a critical component for Canada-U.S. trade. It carries about 25% of our goods trade with the United States. And on any given day, you can see upwards of $400 million worth of goods being imported and exported across that bridge. The auto industry is a key driver of the Canadian economy. Motor vehicles and parts are our second largest export. Every day that that bridge remains closed has significant impacts on automotive production. And now we're already seeing ships being cut at facilities across the province and in the United States. The industry relies on just-in-time delivery. Parts get delivered just before assembly. And if there is any delay, it causes a ripple throughout the supply chain. It's a related issue to a certain extent, but I think what's happened here over the last couple of days even underscores uh, what you and others have been talking about, about the the intricacy rather of the supply chain and how Canada, U.S., you know, is so intricately, these parts go back and forth, back and forth. And uh, that's why I was always concerned when, you know, the the president was always talking about cars are made in America. They're made in North America. And this underscores this because I know that uh, the uh, uh, Michigan Governor Whitmer, of course, is very upset about this. And there are plants that are now downsizing there. Uh, because they can't get the parts that they need from coming across the border. Uh, and you're already being banged up here by what's going on with supply chain problems anyway. I mean, this is just making a, a, an ugly situation that much worse, isn't it, Brian? It is. We were already dealing with pandemic-related shortages that have been persisting now for two years. Uh, there's a global semiconductor shortage. Semiconductor supplies are still not significant enough to reach demand. And so we've seen production shortages across North America and across the globe. In Canada last year, we built 1 million less vehicles than we typically would pre-pandemic. So the industry was already grappling with that, starting to see some good progress in terms of semiconductor capacity increasing, production on the rise, and now we're faced with this. So it couldn't have happened at a worse time. Now, our understanding is that when we say shifts are canceled and some people are being told not to come into work, uh, they have not lost their jobs. not yet, anyway, and I'm not. Hope, I'm hoping we're never going to go down that road. But I mean, if this were to continue over any length of time, uh, this precarious situation uh, could really have a negative impact on unemployment in a lot of these plants. Well, exactly, and and not just in the auto industry. There are Canadians sure. that rely on trade in every sector of the economy, and the longer this goes on, the more significant the impact will be. And and you're right, we're seeing production shortages right now. We're seeing shifts being reduced. So this is having an immediate impact on jobs in the auto industry right now, and not to mention the parts sector, which is also massive and completely interlinked with the United States. So every hour that this continues will have a bigger and bigger jobs impact. And the other thing to note is even if this were resolved right now, there's 
time required to get back up to capacity to get that supply chain humming again. So it's not as though we're suddenly going to, you know, flip a switch and return to full production. It's going to take time. Any estimate as to how long that would take? It could take days. It could take days and, and even run into weeks to get back to a, a fully functional supply chain. So again, that's why we're calling on government. We need a solution immediately. This cannot be allowed to drag on for another couple of days. And frankly, it can't be allowed to carry on for, for additional hours throughout the day. We need this to be resolved now. The Canadian economy needs it and working Canadians need to get back to work. Do you think that the, the fact that now the American government, I'm sure they had some offline conversations, but the fact that they seem to be, I guess it's fair to say, actively involved in this right now. Governor Whitmer in, in Michigan, uh, President Biden, uh, his Homeland Security chief is already saying, guys, why aren't you using the tools that are available to you right now? They, they, I get the sense that on that side of the border, Brian, they understand the urgency of this as well. They do. And, and you know, Canadians are very conscious of how dependent we are on the United States economy. It's not quite the same for the United States. There's such a massive economy. Of course, there's an understanding of the interlinkages, but the dependence isn't as significant. However, when U.S. plants start going down because of this situation, that gets their attention very quickly. So now we're seeing U.S. pressure on the Canadian government to solve this. And I think, frankly, they're, they're asking, why are we not doing anything? Why are we not enforcing the law and removing these blockades? It's such a critical piece of infrastructure. So I'm hopeful that that pressure uh, will will spur some action today. Well, because we've seen this thing spread uh, like a like a bad disease here. I mean, you know, bad enough that we, the Ambassador Bridge, uh, but then when they redirected people over to the Sarnia Bridge, uh, all of a sudden there's a blockade being set up there on the highway on 402. So, I mean, there's there's got to be some definitive action here by all levels of government, really. And I, I feel badly for the municipal governments. I mean, there, there is no municipality, Sarnia, Windsor, uh, Ottawa, anywhere that's that's able to cope with these sorts of things. It, it's going to take all three levels of government to deal with this, isn't it? It does. Yeah, there is no uh, level of government that can take care of this uh, independently. That said, I will um, you know, give huge credit to Mayor Dilkins uh, in Windsor. Um, he has been very, very active on this uh, yesterday. Uh, announced that uh, an injunction is being sought, uh, being led by the Auto Parts Manufacturers Association with uh, my association supporting that effort uh, to try and move this along. And he's asking for resources to help resolve this because it, it really, you know, for, for the economy in Windsor in particular, this is extremely damaging. Now, my understanding is that the injunction is only going to be until about noontime today. Uh, is there an expectation that the Premier's uh, announcement at 10.30 this morning uh, is going to set the wheels in motion to try to find a resolution to this? It could. It could be helpful. We don't know the details yet of, of the Premier's announcement, uh, but it sounds like uh, Ontario is ready to take action. So uh, very looking, looking forward to that and very appreciative of uh, the province showing some leadership here on this. Uh, and then, of course, the injunction hearing uh, at noon. Uh, and hopefully after that, we'll have some clarity on what uh, what can be done. And uh, we'll we'll see some moves to enforce the law and clear the blockade. Well, and I'm just wondering what kind of uh, involvement the U.S. is going to have in this. I know that Governor Whitmer in Michigan is, is suggesting that it's got to be cleaned up on this side. I mean, they seem to be ready, willing, and able to go. Uh, but your point is well taken. I mean, we obviously, with your expertise, we're talking about the impact this is having on the auto industry and the auto parts industry. Uh, but as you mentioned, you look at the enormity of the stuff that crosses that border. I mean, there's this produce that's rotting in trucks right now that can't cross the border. The, we're going to feel the impact of this, even if, as you say, if it gets resolved today, that this is not going to go away anytime soon. 
Well, exactly. And we were seeing wait times at uh, the Blue Water Bridge in Sarnia. A lot of traffic was being diverted there because they do have the ability to handle trucks. Um, but wait times were in excess of four and a half hours, according to the Border Service Agency. We were hearing on the ground that the wait time was actually uh, in excess of eight hours. And at that point, truck drivers do have limits to, uh, around how long they can actually be behind the wheel before they have to pull off and take a rest. So you're, you're in a line, you're there for eight hours, you then have to pull off. Even if the bridge opens, there's going to be a backlog. And so that will take time to work its way through and get back to full capacity and regular border operation. Well, and we've seen some of the tweets from from truckers, and, and I think we need, need to, to reiterate once again, uh, the holdups here in, in supply chain are, are not being caused by people that just aren't going to deliver. There are trucks that are already willing and able to do this. Uh, 90% of the truckers are vaccinated. 90% of them are, are still working uh, for various companies and, and trying to get stuff back and forth across the border. It's got to be an exasperating situation for those truckers that are trying to do their jobs and trying to keep the supply chain going uh, to be blocked from doing their job when they have to get to the border. Well, that's exactly it. Uh, the majority of truckers are vaccinated. They're out there driving, delivering goods to Canadians every single day. This is not a trucker's protest. Uh, it may have started uh, and have been framed that way at the beginning, but if you look at the blockade uh, at the, the Ambassador Bridge, this isn't truckers. This is, this is a group of protesters. Um, so, you know, a big thanks to all the truckers who are out there uh, enduring this, waiting in huge lineups and, and getting goods and foods and medicine to, uh, to Canadians. Brian, what kind of an impact is this going to have on the retail sector? I had occasion to go and visit a couple of friends of mine that work in auto dealerships over the last couple of weeks. First of all, the showrooms are virtually empty. Uh, the lots in the back are virtually empty. Uh, we rely on, on on the automobile industry here. As you mentioned, it's a major part of the Ontario economy, uh, but it's one of the major purchases that people want to make. I mean, you know, a house, which is out of touch for an awful lot of people, but buying automobiles is a major part of what's going to drive this economy right now. And it's crippled. And I know part of it, is, as you mentioned, is because of the supply chain problem that's coming from uh, from the East Asian areas because of what's going on there. But how how are we going to get this industry back on its feet it, it, from the manufacturing standpoint and, and that whole cycle of, of, of the parts, the manufacturing, the assembly, and of course, ultimately the sale of these vehicles? Yeah, we in the early days of the pandemic, we witnessed a significant decline in sales. People were in lockdown. Obviously, there was a lot of concern about the impact this is going to have on the economy, what it was going to mean for the labor market. So sales plummeted. But then really interestingly, the moment the lockdowns ended, the first round of them, we saw sales come back quite strong. But then we were encountered with the semiconductor issue. So there have been inventory shortages across the auto industry. We were on track to return to pre-pandemic North American vehicle production, hopefully by the end of this year, but definitely into 2023. Now this is going to potentially set that timeline back as it will take time to return to full production again. I'll also add too that this has an impact on parts that you see at dealerships. If you go in to get your vehicle repaired, inventories of parts and components were already quite low. This is only going to add to that. So the time for repairs for a vehicle, uh, it, it could take longer. So this has big effects, not just on auto manufacturing, but the whole industry, which employs well over 500,000 Canadians. This is a big industry. It's hugely important for the Canadian economy. So we've got to make sure we can get through this quickly and support a return to normal operations as quickly as possible. 
Brian, I want to talk about the elephant in the room here, and, and that's the future of, of this industry here in the province of Ontario especially. Uh, we all know, we've talked extensively on this program about the huge investments that, uh, well, the Detroit 3 certainly have made when it comes to uh, uh, reinvesting in Ontario, especially with EVs and the production of, of EVs, both trucks and, uh, and sedans and automobiles. Uh, they've just seen this whole thing choked off, and it didn't take a whole lot of effort by a whole lot of people to do this, to shut down them, this bridge. Uh, are you concerned that those, those those automakers may have second thoughts about actually investing here in Ontario and, and simply keeping their cards close to their chest? Or is, is are, are you feeling more comfortable now that uh, that they're going to maintain that and, and, and maintain those commitments to what they wanted to do here in Ontario? Because this is going to have an impact on, well, an awful lot of plants that were really going to be mothballed, and now they're not going to be. I, I'm, I'm still very positive and encouraged about the future of the auto industry in Canada. Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis over the past two years have announced $6 billion in new investment in, into Ontario. $4 billion of that is dedicated to EV manufacturing. So we've got yeah. a bright future here. That said, the industry is highly competitive and the competition between different countries and jurisdictions for new investment is at levels of competition I've never seen before because this transition to electrification is so significant. Automakers are spending approximately $500 billion on electrification over the next few years. So if we wanna to continue to play a role in the industry and attract more of that investment, we've gotta make the best pitch possible to automakers and ensuring then that we have a resilient, and reliable supply chain, the ability to move goods across Canada and into other countries is a key component of that. So I just wanna underline that, you know, we've gotta make sure we get a handle on issues like this. We've gotta have more resilient trade infrastructure and, and make sure that when we are pitching for new investment, that question doesn't come up. Can you deliver goods and will you allow a protest to shut down your industry? I hope our answer to that is yes, we can move goods and no, a protest won't shut down the industry going forward. Well, that may be one of the takeaways from this whole thing. Maybe maybe we've just taken that supply chain for granted and the fact that those relationships exist uh, for granted. And and sometimes when, they, you know, all of a sudden things get shaken up, uh, I think it hopefully what it does is improves your resolve to do these sorts of things. And that's got to be part of the discussion going forward, isn't it, to ensure there's going to be safeguards to, to protect that supply chain and the back and forth movement. It, it absolutely does. And look, Canada is a very unique country. We're, we're massive. We're relatively sparsely populated and where the population is, it's all right along the Canada-US border. And the trade infrastructure that moves goods both across Canada and into the US, it's actually dependent on a few critical nodes. Uh, you know, rail uh, across the country is very important. And then key crossings like the Ambassador Bridge where a huge amount of volume is moved. So we've got to really take a hard look at that and make sure that these types of events can't happen in the future where you cripple an economy because one or two ports of entry go down. I mean, that just isn't acceptable. We're too dependent on trade in Canada. We always have been. Our prosperity derives from the fact that we can trade with the United States, as we saw in the USMCA negotiations a couple of years ago. So we've got to protect that and make sure that we're when we're talking to international investors, that's not a worry, that this is a place where you can reliably move goods. Well, here's hoping we get some good news today, and, and that sets the wheels in motion to try to find some resolution to this. Uh, Brian, thank you for the great work that you're doing for the industry, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Great to chat. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, there's so many... 
things going back and forth about the legal implications of this. Uh, you know, is this illegal? Is it not? Uh, what options uh, does the government have in a situation like this? Uh, what powers do police have? To try to uh, shed some light on this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Andrew Fujuelli, who is a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at uh, the University of Toronto. Andrew, always a pleasure. Thanks on a very, very busy day spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Bill. Glad to be here. Let me ask you, it's maybe an elementary question, but something that our listeners have been asking me over the last few days since we've been having these discussions, especially uh, not just the Ottawa situation, but of course now on the Ambassador Bridge. Uh, some people want to characterize this as a protest, and we have the right to protest in our in our society and in our country. Others are saying it's illegal. Uh, is is there a legal definition of where you cross that line from from uh, uh, your right as a citizen to something that's it's now deemed to be illegal? Well, so we've talked a lot on this program before, Bill, about how Canada's constitution is about balance. And yeah. uh, in this case, uh, there it's, the, the answer is actually both. Um, it can be a protest, but there can be elements of that protest that can breach the law, specifically where the protest takes place uh, and what happens during the protest uh, can transform it from just a straight protest uh, to one that is illegal. And uh, it's not just this protest uh, that the truckers are, are doing in Ottawa and at the different bridges, um, but it happens frequently. Um, you see protests that happen in the streets of Toronto uh, that technically are breaching Highway Traffic Act laws, bylaws, etc. Um, you see protests that take place in parks uh, that, that, that breach bylaws. So there's often an element of a protest that does breach the law. The question that comes into balance is, um, uh, the, the question that comes about is balancing that, the right to protest with uh, just how far the disruption takes place in terms of breaching the law. And there's an example of that, I guess, even in, in Ottawa, where they're, I guess, heading into the third weekend now, the, uh, the occupation of downtown Ottawa. Uh, and there's a class action lawsuit that's been filed there by one of the residents who lives downtown, actually a government employee, uh, who lives, I guess, not too far from the Parliament buildings. And and the gist of it is, uh, you have disrupted my life. I can't sleep. I can't do my job properly, et cetera. There's a whole lot of things that I think are listed in this. Uh, and we don't do class action lawsuits, not to the extent, I guess, that our, our neighbors to the south do. Uh, but they do exist in this country. And uh, is, is there a basis for what constitute uh, a legitimate uh, complaint about something like that? Does it have to be physical harm? Can it be quality of life? All of the above? What are the parameters there? Uh, there's there's no real parameters in terms of class action lawsuits. All you have to show is that there are damages uh, that have taken place or that there's a cause of action uh, against you. And, and that doesn't have to be physical harm or even financial harm. Um, although I, I think part of the class action lawsuits, frankly, are both of those. Um, but it can also be just your your ability to uh, to live your life. And, and you've got with Ottawa, you've got an occupation, so you've got people unable to move around in the downtown core. You've got excessive amounts of noise, um, which are difficult for people both on a physical level uh, and just on a mental well-being level and a living your life level. So there's certainly a basis to go and attempt to do that, to, to bring the lawsuit into play. Class actions often take a lot of time. There are a lot of legal hurdles that have to happen that I think the the, the parties there are trying to expedite. Uh, but there's certainly a basis to go into court and claim uh, that a large class of citizens is being disrupted by the actions of other private individuals. 
since we're getting into lawsuits here, and that's, I, I think, going to be part of the discussion going forward, Andrew, simply because of the frustration that uh, a lot of people are feeling these days. Uh, I saw a couple of tweets uh, yesterday from folks up in Ottawa uh, that are suggesting that they're entertaining the idea of suing police for not doing their job. I think that was the phrase. I'm paraphrasing it, but that, that was the gist of it. Uh, you know, right. you're standing by and, and this is not breaking up. It's your job to break this up and protect us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, right. Do, can police services be sued for, for well, this is an interpretive question, I guess, not doing their job? Yes, they can. It's a high hurdle, but they can. Bill, you'll remember in Toronto years ago, um, uh, there was the famous case of Jane Doe versus Metropolitan Police, where the police were sued because they didn't do their job. In that case, you oh, had, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you had an individual who um, was sexually assaulting women, breaking into their homes in a, in a, in a defined geographic area, and uh, they didn't warn the residents. And so a woman who uh, became a victim sued the police and said, you know, you had a duty to warn us that this guy was on the loose in our area and was striking. And uh, the police essentially tried to, uh, to fight that. They were unsuccessful. It's generally hard to sue the police because our system gives the police a great deal of latitude as to when and who they charge. Um, the police are not obliged to charge somebody the minute they become aware that that person is committing a crime or breaching a law or, uh, or or anything like that they have that latitude but again there's a balance on that so while we the balance generally tilts towards the police in that context in that calculation uh, there can be a point where um it, it becomes the courts view their inaction as egregious and creating damages, creating a cause of action against a person or a group of people. And here, I think one of the things that they're going to try to do if they do try to sue the police is say, look, there have been other demonstrations in this province where you acted quickly to um, essentially disrupt or break up the demonstration or the protest and move things along. And you charged people, you ticketed people, you used the tools at your disposal as a police force that you're just not doing here. And of course the police would have a counter argument about why they're not doing it here. Um, but it, it, it would fall within the question of the balance between those ideas. So I, it's a high hurdle, but it's not an impossible one. Yeah, and, and the, the Jane Doe situation that you referenced, I mean, there was physical harm, as you say, she was sexually assaulted. Uh, and and I guess the argument there, it was that uh, you know, they knew the area. They knew that it was uh, young women that, you know, living on second and third floor uh, apartments. So they, they, in other words, there was a select group they could have, but they did not uh, warn them about this. I, but this is this is a little more vague. So it's fascinating to see just how far the road down the road this is going to go. Uh, let me ask you about what's maybe happening later on today. I mean, there's been a great deal of pressure. We just talked about pressure on the police for quote unquote not doing their job. Uh, you've seen the backlash here, as I certainly do on this program. Uh, saying that the federal government and the provincial governments are not doing their job, that they're standing by here, wringing their hands and saying, this is awful, uh, but they're not being active on this. And we'll see what happens later on today. But what tools do governments have, uh, you know, to, to be able to do something like this? I mean, I know some people want to go to the extreme of simply sending, you know, police in there, with, you know, with riot gear and breaking this thing up. I don't think anybody legitimately wants to see something like that. I don't know that that's going to do anything except cause more grief and more harm. 
but it is a tool. It's probably the extreme tool, but it is a tool. What what can they do? I mean, I'm, we're hearing rumors, for instance, uh, that the premier may declare a state of emergency. What, what, what's the what's the benefit to doing something like that? Well, if we go through the levels of government, they have different tools available to them. And uh, the province has the widest range of tools available to them because it's provinces who have jurisdiction over property and civil rights, which is the area of the constitution that's most directly engaged with this in terms of governmental power. The federal government actually has relatively limited tools here. Um, They can uh, declare a national emergency and then that would give them the opportunity to do things like call in the military, um, which again is is something that clearly the federal government is loathe to do. So if you look at the province, they've got a wide range of things that are available to them. The first of which, which you mentioned, is declaring a state of emergency. What does that do? Well, we've lived through it. Uh, We lived through it in the early days of the pandemic, especially where the, the province declared a state of emergency and that allowed them to pass a number of laws uh, that they would never otherwise ever be able to pass. Uh, the clearest example I was thinking about this morning was, you know, the, the limit on, in, on, on how many people can be inside a residence or a building at one time. You remember in the darkest days of the pandemic, there was essentially a five person limit uh, with the exception only being for immediate family. That's something that would never pass constitutional muster if it was challenged in court. The state of emergency gives the government the chance to enact laws that they ordinarily never would be able to enact. And if they did that here, there's a wide range of things that are available to the provincial government to do that. And you're hearing rumors that some of these things are on the table. You could have stiff fines, targeted fines for uh, protests happening in certain areas, such as by the bridges. Um, You could have uh, administrative action taken to suspend commercial licenses for these truckers, seizure laws to seize the truckers, uh, to seize the trucks, excuse me, and uh, and also remedies under um, legislation to get at the money that's funding these protests or to seize property uh, that is associated to these protests. There is a wide range of things that the province could do, and it sounds like a lot of them are on the table. Yeah, I just emailed as you and I were talking about this, uh, saying why aren't the OPP uh, taking down truck license numbers and uh, handing out fines? Uh, That is an option. Uh, Actually, that's one of the stories we're hearing from our folks at Queen's Park. One of the things that they may be considering. Uh, And as you say, there's a number of things they can do there in fining them, uh, insurance premiums. Uh, It seems that uh, a lot of these truckers are what they uh, would call broker truckers. In other words, they're sort of independent operators in situations like this. Uh, but these are drastic things that, that can and, and should be done. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of the calls. You mentioned about, you know, the uh, calling in the army. Uh, the only time we've seen that, I think, in, in our lifetime was the War Measures Act, of course, way back when, and with, uh, well, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau. But that was a different circumstance. I mean, that was, uh, there was a, a murder and two kidnappings and a murder uh, that I think probably were the catalyst for that whole situation. And uh, the now famous, uh, you know, just watch me, uh, how far will you go on this uh, by Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, this is a huge economic and very crippling thing, but uh, I, I, you can't go to the extent, I guess, that they did in the Quebec crisis and the, the October crisis back in those days, because there was concern that there were going to be more kidnappings and more deaths in that situation, uh, which is, you know, a, a pretty dangerous circumstance. Uh, what we're dealing with now is is pragmatically, you know, killing us from an economic standpoint, but there's there's no bodily harm that can be actually, uh, I guess, laid on the table here as, as a causation for this, is there? 
Not in the direct way that the FLQ crisis happened. I mean, I, my, my sense is during the FLQ crisis, there was um, a large number of, of Canadians were terrified that, that, you know, bombings could take place and, and other terrorist acts that directly affected people's lives. Well, and and they already had, them. as you recall, remember, they were blowing up mailboxes in the streets in Quebec. They were. So there, there, was, Abs- a, yeah, there, was, there was a pattern of danger. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the violence was the name of the game when it came to much of what the FLQ was was doing. And and here you, you don't necessarily have that to the same extent. Of course, there have been reports of, of um, violence being visited on people by some of the protesters here, um, but that's not sort of the central, um, uh, I'll call it, operating mode of what this is. This is about economic disruption and, and disruption of people's daily lives. And I, I look, I, I don't have any um, intel on, on the prime minister in the prime minister's office or anything. I would think he would be relatively loath to go down that path to, to do what his father had done and, and be the second prime minister to invoke the War, Me- the War Measures Act when he didn't do it during the pandemic. Um, it's, it's such a harsh measure um, and uh, it's such an extreme measure that I, I, I would expect what the federal government wants to see first is the province exhaust all of their options, which as we've talked about are many. And um, I, I think that realistically the provincial measures are so wide ranging that that as they start to happen, I really think that that's where um, you're going to actually see some progress here because the province can make measures that target where the protesters are, whether they can be arrested, whether they can be ticketed, whether seizures can take place, whether the money that's funding them can be seized. And, and you've seen that already with the Attorney General going to court uh, yesterday and getting uh, a GoFundMe account with millions of dollars restrained which means that that money now has to sit in that account and the government can go and try to have it forfeit as offense-related property. So there's a wide range of things the province can do and, and you're really starting to see that now. Uh, we're told there's an injunction. There's going to be another court hearing uh, later on today uh, about a temporary interim injunction, they're calling this, uh, I, which I assume is legally binding. For those who ignore that, is, is, is you get a ticket or can you be arrested for that? What, what are the, what's the protocol there? It's a court order. An injunction is a superior court order. Um, and if you uh, uh, disobey it, you can be arrested, period. And, and this is not a unique first time uh, uh, appearance for this remedy. These remedies happen all the time. Injunctions happen frequently. Um, uh, many of your listeners were probably uh, uh, have been involved in uh, uh, union protests. Uh, and it's frequent that uh, companies... Uh, where there's, say, a, a strike and a, and a blockade by a union of a certain place of business, the companies will go to the Superior Court and ask for an injunction, uh, which will set limits on where the protesters can stand and what they can do, um, so as to, for example, allow the entry and exit to the building uh, to be free and clear so that uh, management and other workers who are not participating in the strike can go through or so that trucks and goods can flow through. This happens all the time. So an injunction is a pretty standard um, uh, remedy that, that parties will seek in Canadian law. And, and if you don't obey it, uh, you could be arrest, arrested for, for breaching the court order. I, I know the judge that they approached about this uh, was supposed to actually deal with this yesterday and decided to put it off, I think, for 24 hours or so. Uh, and again, I'll paraphrase. I think it was he said to give the other side a chance to digest what might be happening here. 
with that yeah. in mind, uh, with whatever the premier may or may not announce today at 1030, uh, will those be effective immediately or does he have to have that grace period involved in that? Well, I think that's more of a due process grace period. So it's Chief Justice Morowitz who, who uh, is hearing it. Yeah. Um, he's the Chief Justice of the Superior Court of Ontario, and he's hearing it. And he, he wanted to give um, the defendants, in this case, the, 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 the protesters, the truckers, uh, the, the chance to respond to it. But, you know, ordinarily you'd see a, a grace period of several days for less important matters here, the Chief Justice wants to move it on. He's given them 24 hours, um, and, and the wording is is right to digest what's happening and to be able to to marshal a defense. They're going to be given a chance to to set out why the injunction couldn't take place. Um, I would say that in this case, the defendants, the truckers, especially when it comes to the two bridges and the flow of economic goods going through, they're going to have a very very high hurdle to get over to uh, explain why there shouldn't be an injunction here. They've been given 24 hours to marshal their arguments, but you could see an injunction granted as early as this afternoon. And if that injunction is granted, it's just another tool that uh, will be in place to um, start to deal with, with this protest and some of the after and some of the effects of this protest. Well, we'll find out, I guess, uh, in part, what's going to happen when the Premier addresses uh, the province in just a few minutes. Andrew, always a pleasure and always insightful to get uh, your input into what's going on. Thanks so much for spending some time with us again today. My pleasure. Talk to you soon, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's happening federally uh, because there are some new twists and turns to what's going on. Just as Premier Ford is uh, taking a lot of heat for uh, not doing what a lot of people think should be doing, the Prime Minister is certainly in the hot seat as well. And uh, I want to bring uh, Alex Boudelier into the conversation here. Alex, of course, is the national po- uh, politics reporter uh, for Global News in the nation's capital. Uh, Alex, busy day. Thanks for taking some time with us today. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Uh, I want to start right off with a piece of reporting that you uh, you filed yesterday uh, to do with the uh, what you call intel reports that are uh, uh, floating through the uh, the protesters and, and those in the occupation group, I guess, that's in, in Ottawa these days. Uh, interesting piece of, of information here about, uh, I, I think you could probably safely say misinformation, but the be, that's being spread out among these people. How did you come across this? Well, I was actually uh, talking to another journalist, uh, a friend of mine who's been covering this, Justin Ling, um, and he had mentioned that this had been floating around, and I reached out to a few sources in uh, the national security community here and managed to find a link uh, to this database. There's only about 20 documents in this Google Drive. It's not secured. It's uh, open for anybody who has the link. So it's not like, you know, we were uh, hacking into a system or anything. Um, But I think the value in these documents is to get a sense of what the protesters themselves are are feeling about the situation. Um, You know, their reflections on developments and their interpretation of developments, right? Because I think, you know, in a lot of the coverage, journalists up here are doing the best that we can in a, in a fairly hostile situation to get their perspective across, get their, um, you know, their, their you know, perspective on, on why they're there and, and what's happened since they've been there. Um, but we're dealing with a fairly hostile crowd. So these documents give us sort of a window into what the protesters are telling themselves, whether or not, you know, it's reflective of, of reality. Um, it's certainly what they, they are telling themselves and, and reinforcing their own narrative. Uh, and, and, and the essence of it, I guess, uh, 
because I know you've uncovered a number of documents here. It's like anything bad you've seen in the media is either a, a, a lie, it's a smear campaign, or it's the result of somebody else. It was not us. It was not the, the protesters that were uh, guilty of starting the fire in that apartment building. It was not them that uh, that raided the uh, the food bank, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's pretty much the narrative that they're trying to get across, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it's you know a smear campaign at best, um, or what's what's called in the sort of conspiracy community a false flag uh, at worst, which would be some kind of operation by their political opponents um, to paint them in a negative light by pretending they're protesters who are are doing these things. Again, this is not reflective of the facts that we know from first-person accounts, from videos on the scene, from testimony from you know the Shepherds of Good Hope themselves in terms of who they were dealing with, but it is what they're telling themselves to sort of. I think kind of bolster morale and and sort of you know keep the the group cohesive. And as is always the case with a lot of these campaigns, there's there's always a smidgen of of uh, legitimacy to this. And, and and as you reported yesterday, the part of that I guess is uh, one of the authors of this is a, a, an individual who actually did work for the government, I guess, in, in, as a researcher at one point. So uh, I guess they're holding this individual up as well. This is an authoritative voice, knows what he's talking about, so it must be true. Yeah, and I, th- I think there's some danger to that. You know, there, there have been plenty of people who have worked for Canadian intelligence and the Canadian Armed Forces, um, you know, who could hold themselves up and their experience there to make them some kind of expert. But, you know, not everybody who worked in Canadian intelligence is still a professional intelligence analyst. So I, I think we have to be cautious in, in over-relying on credentials there. And it should note that these are not really intelligence reports. You know, I've I've looked through, uh, you know, censored intelligence reports, <clears throat> excuse me, in the past. These do not reflect the kind of materials that you would produce as an intelligence analyst in the government of Canada. It's more sort of musings on, you know, the reporting that we've been doing, musings on public comments by, you know, uh, Chief Peter Slowly or the uh, the mayor of Ottawa, Jim Watson. Um, so it's not really intelligence in the in the sense that here is some, you know, privileged information that we're passing on to you. It's more, you know, sort of Here's the weather today. Oh, and by the way, the police are closing in on us, so we have to stay strong. And, and as uh, you reported from one of your sources here, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's true or false. It matters if it has impact, and it certainly has impact with the uh, the protesters, doesn't it? Absolutely. And if I should say, if you read the the sort of daily reports in chronological order, towards the more recent reports, there is more talk of you know politicians and police creating a space for for political violence. Right? You know, they put. They put it on politicians and the police for basically creating the possibility of violence. So heaven forfend that we do actually see violence as this protest is policed and, and you know, ultimately wrapped up. Um, you know, they're already sort of setting the narrative that, you know, it's the police and the politicians who enabled that, not the protesters themselves. Uh, and as you and your uh, global colleagues were reporting uh, earlier this week, too, uh, I guess part of this campaign is uh, a flood of fake 911 calls. In other words, keeping police busy. Uh, answering and responding to those and tying up a, a very important uh, conduit, a very important asset for, for uh, public safety. Yeah, I mean, it, even if you were somebody who was sympathetic to the protesters' uh, you know, goals or sympathetic even to their tactics, um, if you had a loved one who needed an, an ambulance uh, because they're having a heart attack or they had a stroke uh, and you can't get through because you know fellow travelers are, are clogging up the 911 lines. Like, what does that do to the sympathy that you might have for the cause? It's a very dangerous game. And I should note that the police have indicated that it seems like uh, these tactics are coming from uh, actors in the United States rather than actors, you know, actually in the encampment or here in Ottawa or in Windsor. 
Um, and I think that that's probably a symptom of the fact that this is really galvanized and been amplified by, you know, groups like Fox News, uh, right-wing pundits in, uh, in the United States who have to deal with none of the consequences. You know, like even if, even if you're sympathetic to the protesters, the protesters are going to have to deal with consequences as a result. Tucker Carlson on Fox can say whatever he wants and faces absolutely no consequences from things like 911 lines being jammed up. So I think that this is very much a sim- symptom of the sort of amplification we're seeing uh, south of the border and elsewhere. Let's, let's, let's talk about that aspect of it. We know the Americans are watching, certainly, because you know, you're right. The guys on Fox News seem to talk about this a lot. Uh, the world is watching. We're starting to now understand that uh, the U.S., the Biden administration is, is is getting involved in this in some way, shape, or form. Uh, well, we already know, of course, that Michigan Governor uh, uh, Gretchen Whitner has, has sent a letter to, I guess, both the Prime Minister and the Premier of Ontario saying, look, you got to fix this. you got to do with this now. Uh, the head of Homeland Security, I guess, was in touch uh, with Bill Blair uh, and, and with the Prime Minister's office. Uh, there's a, a meeting today, I assume it's a Zoom meeting, between the, the Prime Minister and President Biden. Uh, is there pressure on on the Trudeau administration to, to act upon this and do a lot more than they have been doing? I think that there's a tremendous amount of pressure facing the Prime Minister right now, uh, mostly concerning the Ambassador Bridge, right, the, the Windsor situation. Yeah. Less so in Ottawa, although there's pressure there. But, you know, it's one thing to sort of snarl a few blocks of downtown Ottawa to a halt uh, for a couple of weeks, you know, to take nothing away from the suffering that those people who live there are actually experiencing. But it's another thing to, you know, put at risk the the biggest uh, route of trade between uh, two of the biggest economies in the world, right? The Ambassador Bridge is crucially important to both the economy of the United States and the economy uh, of Canada, obviously. Um, so once you start messing with that, then I think you see a lot quicker political response. You know, as you note, you're going to live to Premier Ford later today. He'll n- no doubt have something to say on this. Um, the Prime Minister convened a meeting of Cabinet's Incident Response Group, which is a Cabinet committee that deals with major events. Um, last night, he briefed uh, the opposition leaders last night as well, uh, which is something that the Conservatives have been demanding for a while. Um, so I do think, you know, now that protests are putting the economy at risk rather than just our democracy, you're starting to see a lot quicker action from politicians, including the prime minister. Well, and I know so many people have drawn the analogies, and I talked with the, our colleague Andrew Cohen, of course, uh, from Carleton University, who's a, a, a guest on our program from time to time. And, you know, he I'm sure you saw the piece he wrote earlier this week. Uh, the, the comparisons between Justin Trudeau and his father handling crisis situations, I guess, is inevitable. Uh, and he referenced, of course, the October crisis uh, and, uh, and the War Measures Act. Uh, I don't think anybody is expecting Justin to be Pierre. They're, they're two separate people and very different people in, in so many different ways. But is this, uh, is this going to be Justin Trudeau's watch me moment? Or is, 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 is that something that's even necessary at this stage? Well, I, I would I would just say that the contexts are very different, right? I mean, we, what we have right now are protests that are absolutely disruptive, uh, absolutely taking up a lot of oxygen. What we don't have, and hopefully we will never have again, is you know the kidnapping of cabinet ministers and yeah. ultimately assassination, right? I mean, it's it's just it's it's apples to oranges. I think that said, you know, the the common link between the two is that you know opposition politicians and I think Canadians are looking to Justin Trudeau right now to provide some measure of leadership to be seen to be actively engaged in this more so than he has been. I think that's a fair comment to say. And I think that that the Prime Minister's office and, and the Prime Minister himself are starting to realize that. And that's why you're seeing, I think, much, much more public activity, not to say that he hasn't been seized with this behind the scenes, but 
much more publicized activity around this. I don't think anybody wants ultimately the War Measures Act or the Emergencies Act, as it's now known. I don't think anybody wants, you know, troops in the street. Uh, you know, that would be a significant escalation. And I don't think that, you know, drawing a direct line between the two uh, uh, situations is, is ultimately very helpful. And your point's well taken. I mean, we were just talking about that earlier in the show. Uh, you know, the, the October crisis was precipitated by a number of bombings that happened in the streets of Quebec by the FLQ. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, as you mentioned, the, the, the bloody Saturday night, the, the uh, kidnapping of, of Pierre Laporte and James Cross and the ultimate murder of, of uh, Pierre Laporte. So there was there was life was in, in danger. This is not the same. I mean, it's critical. I mean, we don't want to diminish the impact of what's going to happen here, but it's going to be interesting to see uh, just how he, he's going to handle these things going forward and whether or not the, the conversation with uh, President Biden is uh, is going to be a part of that. Now, my understanding is uh, is that Ukraine's going to be on the agenda, too. So was this, was this a prearranged, a pre-scheduled conference, or is this something that's just cropped up in the last little while? Um, you know, I have no inside uh, knowledge of, of how this call came together. I, I would note that President Biden has held several calls with world leaders about Ukraine previously, and, and Prime Minister Trudeau was not on many of those calls. Now, maybe that's just because, you know, uh, the Canadians are working sort of more lockstep with the with the United States on this yeah. file, and they don't need the briefing. Um, but nevertheless, I, I don't think that you would have a one-on-one call bilaterally unless the American administration, uh, you know, if the American administration wasn't very concerned about uh, this bridge between Michigan and, and Windsor. Um, again, it can't be overstated how important that is to cross-border trade. It's the single largest artery of cross-border trade um, in the world. And, you know, uh, the Americans will not put up with disruption uh, of that corridor for, for very long. I should say also, to add to the political pressure, you're starting to see American politicians saying, look, this is why we can't have globalized trade. This is why we need Buy America. This yeah. is why we need more production domestically rather than relying on international partners. And, you know, if that sentiment gains traction, that's big trouble for Canada's economy, right? Um, and the prime minister has, you know, and his government have, have been lobbying the Biden administration to dial back some of that rhetoric. Um, and, you know, we're seeing this incident now uh, giving more ammunition to the politicians who want, you know, more manufacturing in their districts. Very fluid situation, and uh, we'll be watching, as always, for your updates. Uh, go to globalnews.ca uh, and uh, get all the updates uh, from Alex and uh, his colleagues up in the nation's capital. Always a pleasure, and uh, thanks so much on a very busy day for spending some time with us. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. All right, anytime. Stay safe. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a football game coming up on Sunday. The Super Bowl, uh, much anticipated Super Bowl, uh, with two, well, shall we say, very unlikely participants in this. Uh, to talk about that and the game going forward and, uh, well, who the favorite may or may not be here. Johnny Avella, who's the director of race and sportsbook operations for DraftKings, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Johnny, good to have you on the program again. Hope you're doing well these days. Uh, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Uh, yeah, exciting week. You know, b- a bunch going on. The big tournament down in Phoenix, uh, big golf tournament, the waste management, and uh, the Super Bowl to end the week. So uh, we're, the, the team's really busy putting everything together. Waste management's always a fun golf co- tournament to watch, too. This is the crowds and the, the just incredible. So uh, we're going to be glued to the TVs all weekend long. Johnny, here's, here's the thing. I, I was going to say earlier, I said, you know, at the, at the beginning of the football season, I don't think anybody would have picked uh, the Rams and the Bengals to be in the Super Bowl. I, I would submit that at the beginning of the playoffs, 
this year. Nobody would have picked these two teams to make it. Uh, what happened here? I mean, we saw some great football, but uh, did anybody see this coming? Uh, probably not on the Bengals side. The the Rams were somewhere around the 15 to 20 to range at the beginning of the year and kind of hung around that, that number. Uh, it, you know, we didn't know if they would win that division or not. Um, uh, they had, a, they had a very good year and, uh, you know, won a couple of playoff games barely. Um, no, on the other side with Cincinnati, in order for them to get there, the bills had to lose a game with 13 seconds left. Uh, the chiefs could not, grab any piece of Burroughs jersey during their game. So he was able to squirt free a few times and run and, and pass for, you know, big gainers. And I'll tell you, these games only come down to one or two plays. Uh, so, if, you know, one or two plays decide the game. And if that happens a couple games in a row, uh, you make it to the, to the Super Bowl. Um, now we'll see if any of these two teams, uh, you know, can perform again and have a little bit of luck on their side. Well, let's go back a few months to, you know, before the season started here. Uh, let's face it. I, I, I think there was a lot of skepticism, on, you know, on behalf of the Rams. I mean, Sean McVay really rolled the dice uh, the, the offseason, didn't he? And said, look, at, this is not the guy that's going to get me to the Super Bowl again. Uh, they seem to fall out of disfavor. Uh, they made the deal for Matthew Stafford. With uh, Some suggested he was finally emancipated from the Lions. Uh, is, is, is McVay vindicated now? I mean, they're there. They haven't won the game yet. They haven't played it. Uh, but Stafford, if not the reason why they're there, is certainly a main factor in why they're playing football on Sunday. Oh, that is so very true. Um, and, and uh, you know, usually in a Super Bowl, the MVP is the quarterback. Now, of yeah. course, we had to make both quarterbacks the first and second choice because they're the most likely uh, when you look back at, at the MVP winners. You know, 70%, 75% of the time it's the QB. In this particular game, though, you know, if the guys both have just an adequate game and, you know, a running back has a big game or one of the receivers or even a defensive player or possibly even the kicker, McPherson, uh, you, you know, you could somebody else could take, uh, you know, center stage here. So um, it's yeah, it's it's a little bit different Super Bowl uh, than some of the past we've seen. Well, and do you want to talk about, I was going to say unlikely heroes, but the name I'm going to mention is not an unlikely hero. He's had a breakout year. And I mean, he's been a good ball player for his career, but uh, this past season has been something special for Cooper Cup. I mean, this guy has just ballooned into one of the great receivers in the game now. Boy, is he. Uh, you know, he's scores a lot. And actually, you know, we have him as first touchdown scorer. He's actually our favorite uh, at five to one. And he's getting played pretty heavily. Uh, we also have him to score any touchdown. Like, we have to lay two to win one. Nobody cares about laying the two to one because they feel that's going to happen. But what a what a great year. Uh, you know, today it was announced that Aaron Rodgers won the MVP award. But uh, I bet in the Rams' eyes it was uh, Cooper Cup that should have won it. What's interesting about this, though, if people have, and we've had the occasion to watch the Rams a lot this year, is is the immediate chemistry that that Cup and, and Stafford developed uh, to the point where McVeigh could actually kind of mold the offense around that? I mean, you know, Cup's got the uh, he's got the basically the green light to change patterns if he sees a, a, a you know the way the coverage is starting to find it, and that only works if the quarterback and the and the receiver are on the same page. And <laughs> judging by the stats this year, they've been on the same page a lot. Cooper Cup. Uh, 
runs good routes. That's number one. Number two is the QB always needs a go-to guy, a guy that he can rely on to catch the ball as long as it hits his hands, fingers. And Cooper Cup is that guy. So Matthew Stafford has a lot of confidence when he's thrown at the ball to Cup's way. Uh, and you'll notice that on a lot of teams. There's one guy that they go to all the time. And and the reason those guys get free, uh, you know, the, the consumer will ask, how come that guy's free all the time? How come he catches so many passes? Well, he runs precise routes. He goes to where he's supposed to go. And that's that's Cooper Cup and uh, Stafford. That was, that's why that connection works all the time. There was some concern about the Rams' defense in the playoffs. I mean, they've been hot and cold. Uh, and even even in the NFC Championship game, I mean, the first part of the game there, you're thinking, oh, my God, these guys just didn't show up. Uh, they did in a big way in the second half. Uh, did they continue that? I mean, this is a different kind of quarterback they're playing than they faced so far in the playoffs. Yeah, you know, it's probably the key to the whole game. Uh, Burrow, I think, you know, looking at this game uh, at a distance, it looks like the two quarterbacks might be on the conservative side. Um and therefore, you know, it's, can they get their hands on Burrow? Uh, well, they got two of the best defensive ends in the game. So, uh, you know, he's going to have pressure, but he was able to escape that pressure against the Chiefs. This is a little bit better uh, defensive unit than the Chiefs. Um, and you're right. I mean, the Rams have had times of brilliance and times where they've looked awful, let teams back in the game. Um, you know, and that's what that's why when we, as odds makers, we make a line based on what the team's, uh, you know, power ratings are. And then we let it go from there. Uh, you know, we're not, we're, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen. We just uh, use a rating, put up a line and we let the, uh, the, the betters decide on, uh, you know, where they think they can make their money. But th- there's a lot of speculation about how they're going to do that. And we were just talking about cup and he's not the only good receiver on that club. He's, as you mentioned, he's Stafford's go-to guy. But one of the things that got the Bengals to the point where they are right now was was the way their defense played uh, this year. And it's, well, what they call a drop eight coverage. In other words, they don't rush too many guys. A lot of guys go back in coverage uh, to try to compensate for the fact that there are so many great receivers on the other side. Uh, but the Rams know that. I mean, you know, so do they plan that game time around the fact that, okay, the backfield, the secondary is going to be flooded with Bengals right now? Uh, or did they simply say, I don't care, that's our strength, and, you know, we'll, we're going to continue to do this until you can beat us at it? Well, you know, I don't always agree with that strategy where you you kind of play, have a game plan, and you go with it defensively the entire game. Uh, you know, the Bills use that against the Chiefs, rushing four guys the entire game. If there were times when they have would have rushed five, uh, they may have won the game. So, uh, you know, you have to have that element of surprise. Uh, and these guys watch film. That's They've watched every game they've played all year. So... Uh, it's important that they do change it up a little bit. So, and I would anticipate that, I mean, to a big game like this uh, and pivoting. When you're looking at the lines here and and, and the way the support is going and where the money's going in a situation like this, uh, and again, put this in the context of what we've seen in the playoffs. There have been no runaway games. As a matter of fact, the games that looked like they were going to be runaways, uh, the team that was down usually came back and not necessarily won. I mean, you know, the... Uh, you know, the Bucks had a, a pretty good opportunity and a good run right at the end there. I thought they were gone by, the, you know, halfway through the third quarter and Brady brought them back. Uh, what's what's that do to the betting line? What's that do to, to the to confidence of the folks that are putting the, the, a few bob down on this game here? Because it's, it's 
I, I know what the numbers say now, but I mean, this is clearly one of these seasons where most of these games are going to be too close to call. Well, there's two ways to bet this. Well, there's a thousand ways to bet this game, but the two main ways is pregame before the game starts. You make your wagers then, but we continue that once once the game starts and in any game wagering. So uh, that is where the growth of the business really is. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to participate in in game because they know exactly what you're saying. Things are going to change during, from the beginning of the game. Right. You know, from the very start, we're going to know something through the entire game. And so that's a good way to approach the game as far as betting is concerned is in game because there's going to be some variables here that happen that, uh, you know, that change the complexion of that game. Is, is there a guy that you would look to to say, aside from the quarterbacks, obviously, uh, that's going to be a, a game breaker? That's like, okay, uh, the Bengals' success depends on so-and-so. Uh, the Rams, clearly, I mean, we mentioned Cup. But is there one guy that maybe we're not talking about that is going to shine and maybe turn this thing around for, for their team on Sunday? Well, we, you know, Jamar Chase is that's Burrow's guy to go to for yeah. big plays. So certainly he has to be in the mix. And then Mixon, of course, the running back, uh, you know, you'd like to see him get 75 yards plus, and, you know, that would certainly help their cause. Uh, so they have, there, there are some guys, and McPherson, we don't worry about the kicker, right, because he never misses. Yeah. Rams do running by, by basically by committee, though. they got Sonny Michelle. They've got a couple of guys. Uh, that can carry the pill for the, for these guys too. Uh, and that was certainly the same sort of thing that the Patriots used to do when they were winning Super Bowls on a fairly regular basis too. There was usually not one guy, a committee of guys that can do that. Is, is, is that how McVay goes into this game right now, sharing the load so everybody stays fresh for all four quarters? Yeah, you know, you, you have to establish a running game in the NFL to win. Uh, you know, if your run gets shut down, then the, uh, you know, defensive backs – kind of get the advantage. So it's important for the Rams to at least establish a, a half decent running game. Um, and I think, you know, I think they will, I think they'll be able to move the ball. Uh, you know, are they going to, is there going to be anybody from the Rams get a hundred plus yard? Well, if there is, uh, that probably is going to put them in the win column on this one, but uh, yeah, they'll, they'll disperse the, the, the run game among a few guys and uh, you know, keep, like you said, try to keep it fresh. Well, between the Waste Management Open and, and the Super Bowl, I guess we're going to be planted in front of our TVs from about noon till God knows when on Sunday evening. Uh, always exciting and always great to talk with you, Johnny, and get the insight into what's going on. Enjoy the game. Thanks for some uh, time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. We'll talk again soon. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.